Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. It is time. This is Bill Arnold, and I've got the guys ready for you. It's Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, so let me know what questions you have for the power panel today. Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are ready to take your questions. I've got my Bible open to Isaiah chapter 53, and it says in verses 3 and 4, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. I'm getting ready for next week. It's going to be an amazing week. Greatest week. story ever told. It's the best. Yes. So I'm looking forward to that. Greetings, Tom. Greetings, Jeff. Hi, Bill. Good to be here, Bill. Yeah, always good. Let me know what questions you have. Send them over, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. When does the marriage supper of the Lamb take place, and who are the guests? Great question. There, There's two generally accepted uh, views on where and when the marriage supper of the Lamb take place. One is up in heaven during the tribulation period. If you have a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, then the church is up in heaven during that time and then would come down with Jesus in Revelation 19, where he then establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. The second view, uh, which I believe is that once Jesus returns in Revelation 19 to establish his kingdom, one of the first things we do in this new kingdom established on earth is eat. It's a celebration. It's a celebration. We have a marriage feast. And in fact, this parallels the first century Jewish tradition where the groom would come back for the bride at an unannounced time, take her to his father's house where he's prepared an addition for seven days, at the end of which they would burst out, burst forth like the second coming, and have a great marriage feast. The invited guests then are those who would have survived the tribulation period, believed in Christ, are righteous, and enter into the kingdom in bodily form. Remember, we, the bride, as the bride of Christ, the church has been glorified, we've been resurrected, and we are the guest of honor at that marriage banquet. It's incredible. And uh, what Jeff is saying is absolutely right. Those that will be there will be those that have been covered by the shed blood of Jesus and have trusted in him. And our responsibility between now and then is to mature as his disciples and reach as many people as we can for the kingdom of God and bring his truth. Hmm. There's a, a number of passages in the Old Testament that even describe this and I'm searching for one, and here it is, Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet, that's all peoples, meaning the righteous who will enter into the kingdom, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest 
of wines. Hmm. Sounds like a pretty special feast to me. Yeah, it's going to be incredible, and it's beyond. Here's the thing that I always find amazing when we talk about heaven, because we're actually teaching about heaven right now at my church, is that we have a tendency to want to interpret heaven as the way we interpret things here. And quite frankly, you know, what heaven is going to give us is way beyond even what we can imagine. It will be take everything we have here that we think is good and multiply that by a trillion, and you still won't even understand what it's really all about. So as we talk about heaven, we get glimpses, but the important thing is to make sure you're there by faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. You just described 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those that love him. That's where I got it from. <laughs> <laughs> There's another follow-up question to this first one is, in heaven, will we have sports and music? I'm thinking music, yeah. Well, you know, you look at you look at the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam was told to till the ground. He was told to go out and to take care of the garden. Uh, they had animals there. Um, they had, I'm sure that they had, there was no shame there because they were running around naked. There was no shame. They had everything they needed, and I'm sure that entertainment, to some degree, plays into that. Singing has got to play into that. So I think there's going to be, all of that will be there and quite frankly, even more. So I'm looking forward to it because I think it's going to be one of the greatest moments we've ever experienced in the history of the universe. Hmm. Yeah, no envy, no jealousy. If someone can do something better than you, you're going to think like, wow, that's awesome. You're not going to wish, oh, I wish I could do that or I'm jealous of that or whatever. Um, I, 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 I go back to the verse I just read that we cannot know it's going to be more than we can even fathom. But remember, it's going to be a real, tangible existence. So just as we can take a walk and sit down and talk and learn and practice and 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 all those things, we'll be able to do that for but, but all of the, eternity. The best part of it is that whether there is one Scandinavian guy asked me, he said, is there Ludafisk in heaven? <laughs> I said, Oh, I hope not, but I don't know what's going to be there in that sense. But the bottom line is, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. We're going to be eye to eye with Jesus. I can't think of anything better than that. And that is what we're striving for. And I'm sure all the rest of it over thousands of years will say, hey, isn't that great? But it's being with him that will make all the difference forever and ever. Well, Tom, you referenced guard, the garden, and I think when God makes all things new, he is restoring creation. In fact, restoring this earth. Remember, heaven and earth come together as a new heaven and new earth. On this planet, God will dwell with men for all of eternity, Revelation 21, 3 says. So think back to the garden and the picture that we have of God's perfect creation, and that's probably pretty close to what it will be like in his new creation when he makes all things new. It says the Lord walked with Adam and Eve and talked with Adam and Eve, and they were in his presence. Uh, I can't think of anything better. Hmm. I mean, the biggest struggle I have in this life is that I would like every prayer I pray to be answered immediately. It doesn't always work that way. Hmm. And that's what I hear from a lot of Christians. You know, I prayed and I don't know what the Lord's doing. I don't know the answer. When we get to heaven, it will be immediate. And we have nothing to fear and nothing to be concerned about because the Lord will be there with us. Ezekiel says, then the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Yeah. But Tom, when we pray and we'd like all of our prayers answered just the way we ask right away, um, what about 
the the mind of God that says he has information about your life that you don't have, and he's always going to do things according to his will for his greater glory. I think it's something about how do I remain patient during that wait wait time? No, you're exactly right. Here's the problem with human beings. Although, even as a Christian, I know I'm not God. I'm not the Savior. But when I have a personal problem and I go to the Lord, I think the Lord ought to perk up and take advantage of that right away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The reality is I'm not God and I'm not the Savior. And what you're saying, Bill, is exactly right. But it is one of the hardest things for Christians to come to grips with. When you've got people sick or a child dying or yeah, a marriage falling apart, you know, we expect, we want something to happen right then and there. And sometimes it does. I've seen miracles. You've seen miracles. The Lord does move. But oftentimes it's not always the way we expect. But it doesn't mean it's not the right way. It's the Lord's way, and that's always the best in the end. Do we not count on this almost every day? I mean, I've prayed urgent prayers today. And I've, in the last couple of days, I've seen these prayers answered. Yep. So I did petition <laughs> with a sense of urgency, and those prayers were answered. That's wonderful. Yeah, I know. You know so, I mean, I pray with that sense of expectancy every day. And I, I absolutely love that, and that's the way we should pray. Jesus said, you know, you have not because you ask not. Yep. So we ask, we put it before him. The biggest thing is in our maturity is rejoicing when we get the immediate answers and still trusting when we don't get the immediate answer we think we should get. And that's the tough thing for me. I think it's tough for most Christians because we want to believe it's an immediate type thing. And sometimes, Bill, it is. Mm, yeah, and praise true. God for that. Other times, it just doesn't seem to be. Bill, you alluded to a higher purpose, God's purpose, that we may not see or recognize. And when we pray, it, it might be yes or no or wait from God. But we know and we can trust whatever the answer that he is working. One of the great promises in Scripture that he is working all things for good for those who love him. I remember preaching on that, and I used those three terminologies on answer to prayer. <laughs> Afterward, an older gentleman came up to me and he said, you know, I don't hear anything, any of those things from the Lord. What I hear when I pray is, are you kidding me? So we, we want to stay in tune with the Word that of God. That would be in the no category, yeah, right? I think no that's category. in the no category. Mm-hmm. That wonderful passage in uh, Psalms 37.4, take delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to him. And I think that's the big part is, are you surrendering your will to him? Yeah, and what I have come to realize is that when it talks about the desires of my heart, it's the desires of my heart in relationship with him. It's not my desires as a human being. Because my desires often don't line up with what the Lord says in his word. Mm -hmm. But when I'm walking with Jesus, it is amazing how he begins to give me a desire that I pray about for somebody else to help them or to speak the truth or to use resources I have to be a blessing to someone else, which out of my own human nature, I'm usually looking for, well, what are you going to give me, Lord? You know, what am I going to get out of this? And the Lord says, no, that's not what I want. That's exactly what I think Scripture says when it says, pray according to his will and not ours. Yeah. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. Let me know what questions you have, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. That's the hotline number. Text the questions over. We'll get to them right after the break.
Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. All right, we are back with Guide Talk, guys who talk. Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish is my power panel today. So whatever questions you have, we'll do our very best to answer them. You can send them over, 877-933-2484. Tom, just during the break, we were talking a little bit about prayer. If someone comes to you at your church and says, Tom, would you pray for my son? He is applying for a job in Michigan, and you think... I hope God wants them to go to Michigan. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many turns have people's lives had where you didn't get the job in Michigan and then you went to Wisconsin, which was not where you wanted to go, but then you met the woman of your dreams and got married and had six kids and you go, thank goodness I didn't get the job in Michigan, right? Yeah. In the in my early years of ministry, I'd make the mistake of saying, well, sure, let's pray and, and let's pray that, that he gets it by nine o'clock on Monday morning. <laughs> and I would do those kind of things. And then when it didn't happen, I, I suddenly realized that people didn't appreciate my credibility or that I was I was pushing it too far. What I do now, if you come to me and say, uh, I really want to get this job in another city or I really want this or that. I will say, hey, Bill and Jeff, I'm happy to pray with you. We'll ask the Lord and we'll ask that his will be done in this prayer time, and then we just pray, and I put most of the prayer in, Jesus, what do you want Bill to do? Mm-hmm. Do you really want him in this city? Do you want him somewhere else? What doors do you want to open for him? Because I've learned that oftentimes what we think we need or want isn't what the Lord wants to give us, and it's always a surprise, and I want to be part of the surprise package. Absolutely. I was going to go right to let your will be done, right? And Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but your will be done. And if you're praying, Lord, let your will be done in your life, then you're probably in a very safe place. Yeah. I usually have a long talk with the Lord, both coming to this show and leaving this show on the mm-hmm. way home. And so I'm talking in the car all the time to the Lord. It's an, If you sat with me for 25 or 30 minutes, you'd think, well, in the beginning, he's trying to tell the Lord what to do. Then about midway through, you notice there's a shift and it's, okay, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And by the end of it, I'm literally saying, all right, Lord, I may not always like it, but your will be done because I can't figure it out, but I know you can. And and I think that for most Christians, we have to understand that no matter how mature we are, we still are in that give-and-take relationship with the Lord and just be honest about who you are, honest about what you feel. And I've discovered the Lord can take it. And then he changes my mind, or he redirects me, or he shows me something. And then I'm usually either repenting or I'm saying, thy will be done. Well, look at Paul's progression. You know, he starts off by saying, have you seen my resume? (laughs) Did you check it out? You know, and then a little bit later he says, well, I'm I'm like maybe the elite, one of the lesser, you know, disciples. And Mm -hmm, at the end he was, I'm the chief of sinners. Yeah. Yeah. I put all that behind me, he says, forgetting it all. Yep. And he says, in the end, uh, his power is made perfect in my weakness. And uh, and he sees, says that what he learns is his grace is sufficient for him. What you've just defined is a maturing disciple. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what it means to grow up in the Lord Jesus. Not that we have all the answers, but we know who does. Not that we can supply every need, but we know who does. And that we are willing to submit to his will over what we want because he knows best. Mm-hmm. 
I was talking yesterday to uh, a guest, Dr. Eric Tonis, and we were in Luke, and we were talking about authenticity and how much people are craving authenticity because there's so much hypocrisy. And when they when they experience authenticity, they they get very interested. Well, and that's why I think when we teach, when we preach, we should use as much as possible the Word of God. I mean, what is more authentic? Scripture is from God. Uh, he is the one who knows truth and reality the most. If there's anybody who's authentic, it's it's God, and it's his word. And by the way, there's only one book that I know whose words are living and active, and that is the word of God. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well said. All right, here's a question. I have a friend who recently shared they feel the Trinity may be false teaching because Constantine was pagan, and there are three-in-one Hindu gods. How do I help? This friend also has Jehovah Witness influence from family members. That's a good question. Uh, first thing I would tell him is this. If the Lord could use Pharaoh, he can use Constantine. We don't have to worry about that part of it. <laughs> what we need to do is go back to the Scripture and see how the Scripture exactly. testifies to this. It's interesting in Matthew 28 because the I don't think we understand baptism today to the depth that they would have understood in the first century, entering a new covenant. How did Jesus say to baptize? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus showed us the Trinity in that setup there. And there are other references through the Scripture where Paul is giving uh, benedictions that include the Holy Spirit or include the the Father as we understand it. So there's a lot of evidence out there. Most people, though, haven't looked, and they need to look more in depth and not take somebody else's word for it. uh, One of the very keys that you just spoke about, Tom, is that going to the Scriptures and letting Scripture define how God is presented from the beginning and the end. So right away in Genesis, God is is pictured in a a plural sense. Let us make man in our image. And so there's the first clue. But later on, we have Jesus's baptism and we have Christ in the water. We have the Holy Spirit descending and we have the voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you have seen the father. When, when Thomas uh, stops doubting and believes. He falls down before Christ and says, my Lord and my God. Uh, we could go through probably a hundred different passages that declare the divinity of Christ right. and that the one God, the creator of all, has revealed himself to mankind in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have to go to Scripture and and to see how God has revealed himself to man. Theologians call that the trinity. Yep. And uh and so yeah. I think one of the challenges we face Bill is that with many Muslims having come to America and wanting to interact with Muslims and be able to have conversations that are biblical and and accurate, this is the biggest hang up Muslims have, the concept of the trinity. And I've been blessed because I've had contact and I have material uh that I can uh, I found uh, online and elsewhere where Muslims who have come to Christ are now writing and teaching Christians how to talk about the Trinity in a way that will connect with a Muslim. And it's not anything I would have personally thought of in the beginning. It's a whole different approach. In a good way, you mean. In a very good way. And it's biblical, but it's not the way we would think in the West or the way those of us who have grown up in a Christian environment. And it's very effective, and I encourage people 
uh, to begin to look for that kind of material and put it to work. Mm -hmm. The idea that Christ is God and God in the flesh, I mean, from the very beginning in the New Testament, in the be John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And we know later, I think it's verse 17, where it says, then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that is Christ. So Christ, the Word, is God. Uh uh, John chapter 5 says that Jesus is equal to God. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, yep. uh, basically declaring himself to be God. Um, he is, Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians 1, it goes on to say that all things were created by him and for him and through him, that is through Christ. And yet in Genesis chapter 1, it says God created the heavens and the earth. So we could, we have just dozens and dozens of passages that would show to somebody who is interested in actually doing this study that Jesus is God and God in the flesh. I'll wrap this up, but let me make one more comment if I may. I just finished a series on the seven I am statements of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And what I tried to get across, and people seem to truly appreciate, is in the Old Testament, when Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? And he said, I am, tell them I am that I am. That is my name forever. When Jesus used the I am in the New Testament, which was unheard of, you didn't use that language. Now, we use this term all the time, I am going to the store. That's not the way it was used in Jesus' day. And the moment he started talking that way, the Pharisees, what did it say they wanted to do? They wanted to kill him. Because here is a man claiming to be God. So we see that over and over and over. And I think that's really the ultimate issue uh, with the Trinity is people understand that Jesus is not simply a man, but he is God and man at the same time. Can I, uh, one little story from sure. Scripture that I just love about this word, I am, when Jesus uses it. Remember when all the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden, and they said, they're, we're looking for this man, Jesus. And he says, in, in the NIV, it says, I am he, but I think in the Greek, it just says, I am, Yeah. right? So here's Jesus saying the covenant name of God, I am. <laughs> and you know what happens when he says that? Everybody that came to arrest him falls over backwards <laughs> at the power of that name. And you can just see them dusting themselves up and getting up. And I said, okay, we're going to try this again. And it just shows you the power that Christ could have had at any moment. Remember, he could have commanded an, a legion of angels to come and to stop this thing. But he submitted himself to the cross, even to death. And, uh, and, 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 but he showed a little glimpse of the power that he had just by saying the words, I am. It's still the name that divides every room. It does. does. Salvation is to be found in him alone. In all the world, there is no other name by which you can be saved. That's yeah. why the rooms get divided quickly when you bring up the name Jesus. Which exactly. is another very fundamental truth that is declared in Scripture, that there is no other road, no other gate, no other path to, to God the Father except through him. Mm -hmm. yep. Great He's questions. It. Great questions that you have offered so far. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back with Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Okay, so I have good news and I have more good news. Good news is we've got Guy Talk happening right now. The more good news is we're going to do Guy Talk extended version today. So an extra 30 minutes. So we're going to go a full 90 minutes today with Guy Talk, which means we have plenty of time for your questions. So all you have to do is send them over and we'll do our very best to answer whatever whatever it is you send our way. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. All right. Uh, Tom, you're going to feel like you're going to get picked on a little bit here. It's all right. It's been most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> now I just have to find it. I already went away. So, oh, here we go. Um, a few months back, I heard Tom say that he had a liberal view and that he expects to see most or a lot of people in heaven, something like that. I've thought a lot about that. I don't think it squares with scripture. For example, the gate is narrow and few go in. I do hope... He's right, though. Uh, I understand the sentiment. I rarely use the term liberal in relationship with me, but in in terms of of that, I don't remember that. But if I said it, I was wrong. Hmm. The bottom line is the way is narrow, and it is by the shed blood of Jesus. It is not by being a good person or being kind or anything else. So, yes, I would love to see everybody in heaven. The Lord wants everybody to come to salvation. However... The uh, the question coming in is right from Matthew 7, that the way to eternity is narrow, but the path to destruction is broad. So, no, unfortunately, there won't be as many there as I'd like. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. All right. Um, where can you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Can you give actual scripture? Jesus is not obviously named in the Old Testament, uh, but there are many prophecies for the coming Messiah, which uh, is fulfilled, obviously, by Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, but I think the question is more specifically, uh, do we have appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament? And the answer is actually yes. And I think uh, these are called theophanies or any kind of physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament, uh, generally described as a theophany. More specifically, a Christophany is an appearance of God in the Old Testament in the form of a, of a man and a human being. And I actually think there's lots of them. So when God appears to Abraham as a man, when Melchizedek shows up, uh, the prince of Salem, a man without genealogy, father or mother, and so on, I believe that is a theophany or Christophany. When Jacob wrestles with God, um, remember, no one has seen God. He is a spirit. He's in heaven, and and but we have seen the person of Jesus. So when Jacob is wrestling God, who is he wrestling with? Well, I think that's a Christophany. Um, Moses is said to have met with God face to face, and this is in Exodus around chapter 30, 32, 33. And, but the next chapter... After saying he met with God face to face, he says, God, let me see your face. And he says, oh, you can't see my face. But his presence passes by as Moses is hid in the cleft of a rock. When Joshua meets the commander of the armies of the Lord, we know that's not just a normal angel because he falls down and worships him. And angels do not accept worship. So all these places in Scripture, I believe, are uh, Scripture indicates are are are. Views of Christ or 
or Christ appearing in the Old Testament. One of the reasons I love the ESV translation of the Bible, and I've studied a lot of them, and I respect all of them, but the ESV is one of the few Bibles today that's going back to some of the earlier manuscripts, as far back as they can go for its translation. Now, here's Jude, half-brother of Jesus, right? Now, I had a, I had a brother, loved him dearly. He was a half-brother. Uh, I wanted to be just like Doug, but I would never claim him to be Savior. I would never claim him to be risen from the dead. Nobody claimed that he was the one that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, although in Jude 5, and if you have your New Testaments, look there, Verse 5, it says, now I want to remind you, although you once knew it fully, that Jesus, and then the Greek, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterward afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What Judah is saying, that Pharaoh was confronted by Jesus himself, and that it was that when the plagues came and everything else, it was the hand of Jesus who did that because he was the one that took them to the desert and across the Red Sea. Now, that's a phenomenal statement. And most translations say Lord or Adonai, but the actual early manuscripts that we find now are saying Asus. It was the later manuscripts that changed that to Lord or Adonai. So the power there. I also like in Luke on the road to Emmaus, you know, he unfolded to them, the two on the road, all the Old Testament passages that related to him. And that was a long conversation. Yeah, there's a my list of Old Testament prophecies, direct prophecies for the coming Messiah is about 87 individual unique prophecies uh, long, that he'd be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, Jacob from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, of a virgin, come up out of Egypt, speak in parables, have a ministry in Galilee. You get the Mm -hmm. point. There are, be pierced for our transgressions, uh, but his body would not see decay and he would rise again. There There are 86 unique direct prophecies in the Old Testament for Christ. In addition... You can actually find Christ in every book of the Bible, in every book of the Old Testament, you can find Jesus. Yeah, and I found 87, so you and I have to have a talk. (laughs) Well, I know I I, I shouldn't have said the number. There's a lot that have 104 or 109 or whatever. In, In my personal studies, I found 86 unique direct prophecies. I don't want to double up uh, similar prophecies that are in different parts of the Old Testament. But what I appreciate, Jeff, is that I know very few people that take the time to do that. It's there. We simply have to look for it. Mm -hmm. All right, gentlemen, here's my next question. When I stand before Christ and give an accounting of my life, what will that look like? Will I feel all the shame, remorse, and guilt that I do now? So in my end times class, I love to teach on the judgment seat of Christ, uh, the Bema seat. And this is when we are rewarded for the works done in the body. I think because of some teaching on this, a lot of Christians see this as, okay, it's their turn to go up front with Jesus and a movie of their life is going to be displayed before all of heaven. And I've had people in my class actually tell me that they are not excited about that day. It's like, who would be? Who would be excited to see their entire life displayed before heaven? I don't think that's the picture from Scripture. He says that those things that we are not rewarded for, in other words, our righteous acts that are done, by the way, through the power of Christ in us and through us, will be burned up. Oh, remember, for a Christian, 
God says that he no longer counts our sins against us. If he no longer counts our sins against us, why would he display them before all of heaven on that reward day for believers? He doesn't. I think they're burned up, and we receive our reward. You need to go back to Scripture, underline those verses, highlight them, hang them on your wall, as Jeff's talking about, because I have seen the devil work on Christians that have been walking with the Lord 60, 70, 80 years, but are still terrified that that's what's going to happen on the day of judgment. Jesus says the moment you have believed in him, you have passed from passed out of judgment, you have passed from death to life. Jesus has absorbed all of that. Uh, on the day of judgment, I'm convinced there are only two questions Jesus is going to ask. You know, he's, well, he's going to say, welcome uh, to us who love him. Did you love me? Yes, well, welcome. And the other one is, who'd you bring with you? Because our responsibility as disciples is to bring other people into the relationship with Jesus. The rest of it uh, has been totally taken care of, and it's all done by Jesus anyway. Let me read that couple of verses here from 1 Corinthians 3 about this day when we will be rewarded. Uh, verse 11 uh, through 13, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw— Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, this judgment day for believers, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what he has built survives, he will be rewarded. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet he will be saved. So all of our unrighteous work, I think scripture points to the fact that it will just simply be burned up not broadcast to all of heaven, for all of heaven to see. I saw an old evangelical preacher on YouTube, must come from the 40s or 50s, and he's preaching about this. And he said, and I can't imitate his voice, but, you know, he was rather rather strong by it. He said, when you get to heaven, you know, and Jesus says, why should I let you in? If you start with the word I, you're lost. The only answer you have is Jesus. And I I think about that and is, is... he, he was kind of comical to watch. He was absolutely right. That, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus, and that's mm. who I'm depending on. Mm. Yeah. If you're talking in the third person, you're probably good. It's what he did, <laughs> yeah. not what I did. Right. right? Yep. I agree. It's all him. Mm. Right. Why can't Jews or Muslims eat pork? Why, why the prohibition? Well, for Jews, the law of God has clean foods and unclean foods. It's just one of the one of many of the laws that God gave to Israel to set them apart from the rest of the world, from the rest of the pagan world. Um, it's a good question why, you know, shellfish was prohibited under the law of Moses. Pork was prohibited under the law of Moses. The, the why question, I don't know that I can answer, but God has specific reasons why. You know, one of the things we can see, and we now know why, for example, is he said, if you have an open wound, you're to go outside the camp and, and 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 God would have known about infectious diseases, and so this idea of quarantining those who were uh, had some kind of sickness or illness or so on, they were set out from the camp, right? Well, Israel probably was wondering, well, why is God having us do that? Well, a couple thousand years later, we learn about infectious disease, and it makes all the sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so He had His reasons. I don't. Do you have anything on why pork was prohibited? Or I'm no, I really don't. Not anything intelligent. Well. I appreciate you admitting to that. I, I, I have something, but we're out of time. So, 
I actually talked to a Jew in Israel. He's a, a good friend. We've been on uh, trips with him in Israel three times. And I asked him now that he understands as, as a born-again believer who happened to grow, grow up Jewish, uh, does he eat pork today? Understanding that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. We have been set free from the law. Paul says, I'm no longer under the law. And so I asked him, does he eat pork? And he says, no. And I said, really? You still don't eat pork. You understand that you're no longer under the law. And he says, oh, yeah, I get it. But a whole lifetime of following that command is still with me today. Yeah. I have. I, I, like you, I have a Jewish friend who has come to Jesus, and he really is sold on he's been saved by grace through faith, and he tells me he loves bacon. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are different groups out there. And I do what you're convicted to do. But your focus is on what Jesus has done, not what you do, what you eat or don't eat. Bacon will be free and on every street corner in the New Jerusalem. I'm, I'm pretty convinced. I'm nice, for nice it. crispy bacon, by mm-hmm. the way. I'm for it. Bacon toothpaste. It's going to be everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we'll take a break. And if you have a question for our, our power panel, let me know. 877-933-2484. I know there's a question in there somewhere. You've... Uh, Something came up recently in a Bible study, or maybe you you heard a sermon on the internet, or a couple weeks ago at church, you heard something, you're still kind of wrestling with it. Let us know what that is. We'll do our very best to sort it out. 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined because you just got in your car and you're heading home. I hope you had a good day. Um, and I, I'm just so glad that Jeff and Tom are here. We're having guy talk or guys who talk, which means any questions you send over, we will do our very best to answer. The number to text is 877-933-2484. There's an interesting question. How can Jesus and be God at the same time and man? So how can God degrade himself in such low ways that he made himself into what he actually created as in a human? How does Trinity even make sense? Well, that's the whole concept uh, from Philippians 2 Mm -hmm. about how Jesus emptied himself. The issue is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit who created us in the garden, who started this whole process— desperately loves us. He has a deep love for us. And although we are mixed up, we're sinful, we do a lot of stupid things, you know, it's kind of like a child. I have three sons. I don't care what they do. I'm still going to love them. And I'm always going to be reaching out and trying to redeem them in any situation. That's the same way with the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. When he became man, he said that he gave up his godly powers, only did what the Father showed him. So, you know, I often think of Superman. If I was Jesus in a human body, 
with the Pharisees, I would have ripped it open with a big S that said Superman, and I put them in their place. Mm-hmm. That's not what he did. He restrained himself for you and me. And the amazing part is, uh, it is a type of love that we rarely experience in this life. But once you experience that love in Jesus, it should be so overwhelming that it motivates us to truly love others the way he loves us. You you brought up Philippians 2, and I'd actually like to read it because that's mm-hmm. exactly where my mind went when we talk about Jesus, who is God, becoming human, uh, becoming flesh. And it says this in Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, "...who being in very nature God..." did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Tom, you talked about God's love. That is the message that the world, the lost world, needs to hear, that God loves you. And because he loves you, Scripture says that he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. But if he's going to die for the sins of mankind, God needed to become part of mankind. And so God, the way I like to picture it, is God took off his crown and took off his royal robe and set it on his throne and came down to earth humbly as a servant in the form of a babe, and born in a manger, not as a king, not as somebody very powerful, but as a servant. And he humbled himself even to death and to make the way for us to be reconciled to God. How else can a God tell mankind, I'm here, I love you, I exist, and I want you to be with me other than come down to earth himself and tell us? I think we always admire when we hear stories about uh, a father or mother sacrificing their life for their children, maybe in a burning building or something else. Or we hear about this guy that jumped in the river and saved these kids, but he drowned. And we admire that. And it's wonderful. That is the extent of human love. The Bible says that the Lord's love for us is that he dove into the river for his enemies. (laughs) That the people that wanted to stone him to death, he was willing to die for their children. I mean, it is incredible because it is a love that goes beyond anything we can comprehend as human beings, and yet it is the love that saves us and gives us eternity and a purpose for living. Hmm. All right, here's another question, gentlemen. Uh, what do you think Paul meant when he said in Colossians one twenty four that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I'll read it. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions and for the sake of his body, which is the church. A little, a little Jeopardy pause music, please. For <laughs> <laughs> Just for a second yeah. as we look this up. Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. I won't read it a third time to stall I think for this you guys. is a, a statement that, from our perspective, it's going to be hard to comprehend because there was nothing lacking that we know of in Jesus, absolutely nothing. The Scriptures affirm the fullness of God was in Jesus. He did everything there was to do. However, Jesus told us that he is the head of the church, and we are now his body. 
the body of Jesus today continues to carry the hatred of the world toward Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, and all of that. Paul was simply playing his part. And every time a Christian stands up for the truth and gets ridiculed, or people get martyred, or people get uh, you know put down because of that, or hurt, we are continuing to do exactly what Paul is talking about here, because it is the ongoing body of Christ in the world that we're talking about. Sounds pretty good to me. I, you know, I'm I'm reading this, and I I don't have any notes in my Bible specifically for this filled up part. We know that a Christian is not lacking of every, of anything. Uh, God says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in in the heavenly realms. Uh, we have the Spirit of God who is sufficient for us. His grace is sufficient. Um, you know, so I believe a Christian has been equipped by God with his power and his strength and his Holy Spirit and his word, uh, and we have everything we need for life and godliness, Paul says. So I, 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 at the same time, a Christian is said to be be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to recognize that, count it, understand it, and live it and walk by the Spirit. But in the context here, this seems to be related to his suffering and his afflictions that he is uh, experiencing uh, in the body. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating to me because whenever Paul talks about afflictions, uh, he's the one that says, I rejoice in all these afflictions. Right. And I, I tell you, I... You know the the scene of Paul in the in the jail uh, when he's put in jail he's been beaten and he's singing hymns and praising God because you know that's the first thing we would all do when we're suffering persecution for Christ right <laughs> um, you know the disciples were were whipped one time in Acts and it says and they left rejoicing because they felt worthy of suffering for His name. Wow, it's incredible. I know. I've got one note here. Though Paul is in prison because of his bold proclamation of the gospel, he still experiences profound joy since he knows that his sufferings fill up or complete Christ's sufferings. Paul does not mean that Jesus' sufferings were inadequate to provide forgiveness. He is claiming that his proclamation of the gospel, which was often accompanied by tremendous suffering, is also necessary for the salvation of many people. Mm, I like that. Yep, it's a good word. All right. 877-933-2484. If you got a question for us, let me know what it is. There's lots of great questions coming in. Fortunately, we're going to extend Guy Talk today for an extra 30 minutes. We've got more time for you, so let me know. Again, 877-933-2484. How do I improve myself in listening to God, to hear Him? I don't expect to hear an audible voice, so what is it I am to be cognizant of? Ah, that still, small voice of God that dwells within you. And we tend to be so distracted and so filled. I mean, I find myself, there are days I've, I've constantly got an email in front of me or a text message or my phone or some video that I need to watch or, you know, whatever. And I'm filling myself up constantly. I've got input, 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 input. And I think if you want to hear God's voice, you need to stop and listen to that still small voice. And one of the ways that I personally have heard from God more often than not is through the study of his word he speaks to me by his word. And it's like, oh, there's a truth of God that I just learned in his word. And it's cool. And I can use it in my own life, in my own 
walk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find studying his word is where I hear from God mostly. I absolutely agree. Here's the problem. People study the word, but I don't know too many Christians then who understand how to take that word in practical ways into the world. And that's not putting anybody down. That's a battle for all of us. I encourage Christians to keep a journal. Hmm. And in that journal, write down every day at least one thing you heard from the Lord or the Lord did for you or the Lord did for somebody else. And although I'm a Lutheran, when we have like Lent we've had right now last night, uh, right in the middle of the service, I go, it's testimony time. And I walk down with a microphone and I say to the folks, what has Jesus done in your life? What divine appointments do you have? What miracles have you seen? And what's fun is I'm having a hard time shutting them up. <laughs> now, they didn't do this a year ago, but they're doing it a lot now because it's. I do that in every class. and I do that everywhere I go because we need to connect the Word of God with the reality of how he lives it out in the world through people and through us. Do you get, I get this question often, uh, maybe you do too, does God still speak to his people? And it's like, well, of course he, yes, does. he does. He has given us his word. He speaks through his word. He's given us his spirit. He speaks to us by his spirit. His spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. All creation declares his glory in a way. So I think when we open our eyes and look outside, he's speaking to mankind. And God speaks through other believers in our life as well. So, mm-hmm. yes, God does speak to us. I think we're going to pick that topic up after the break because we're going to extend Guy Talk for another 30 minutes. So let me know what questions you have. There's some good ones still here. 877-933-2484. We will get to your questions when we come back. Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish are my guests. Again, the number, 877-933-2484. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.